This week on Plastic Science, I talk about baby fat, being cold, and breakfast. Welcome back to another episode of Plastic Science. This week, it's the F word. How it affects your life, how much of it you have, and whether it's good or not. We're talking about fat, of course. Fat, 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 fat. This show is just part one because there's an endless supply of wonderful details, research and surgery factoids. There's no way I'm limiting it to one show. I'm going to lead us off with liposuction. Let's go back to 1920s France. Some of the first techniques for removal of fat were performed by a French surgeon, Charles du Jarrier. In 1926, a young model came to him asking to fix her unbecoming legs. Sadly, after his surgery, one leg of the woman had to be amputated because too much fat was removed and her sutures were sewn too tight, leading to gangrene. Du Jarrier had to pay 200,000 francs for damages to her and also for performing surgical techniques that were effectively illegal at the time. So liposuction fell out of favour for decades, until rearing its head once more in the 70s. It has since become a finessed staple in plastic and cosmetic surgery. The principle of lipo is one with which we are all familiar. The tube sucks out your fat. There is now PAL, LAL, UAL, WAL, all standing for power-assisted lipo, laser-assisted, ultrasound-assisted, and water-jet-assisted liposuction. All of these techniques are designed to help break down the fat prior to suction, making the process easier and more efficient. Typically, the fat gets discarded as medical waste, but sometimes it can get injected back into the... Sometimes it is injected back into the patient's on accident in a different area, in a process called fat grafting. One can graft fat almost anywhere, into the breasts, cheeks, joints, posterior, chin, forehead, even lips. With most women, most of the time, the fat is gained in the tummy area. When you liposuction fat out from the abdomen and inject it somewhere else, it will still behave as if it was still in the abdomen. The tissue will preferentially get bigger if the patient is to gain weight again. The fat remembers where it came from. There are reports of fat tissue grafted from the abdomen to the breasts, and if weight is gained after surgery, the weight is gained by the abdominal fat that's now located in the breasts. It is truly the transfer of living tissue, and if I think about it for much longer, my little head's gonna explode. The f this phenomenon doesn't happen in every case. Otherwise, there'd be a much smaller market for breast implants. The benefit of implants is they have a fixed volume and they stay around. The retention rate of grafted fat in the breasts is about 10 to 90%, an extremely variable result. It could be the fat stays forever. It could be broken down within one or two years, making your investment way more short term than you'd like. The average cost of fat grafting to the breasts is about four grand per breast. Moving on to another important job of fat tissue. You have a lot of stem cells located in your fat. These are called mesenchymal or adult stem cells. The way to get them out of the fat tissue is rather simple. After three years of doing it, it's something I became a dab hand at. <laughs> Excuse me. 
Visualize the clear plastic canisters of the liposucked fat coming my way into the lab early in the morning, each about three litre volume. The contents settle into three layers based on density. On the top, there's an oil layer. The oil comes from broken up fat cells and it floats freely to the top. It's dark yellow and transparent. The middle layer is the tissue layer, a dense light colored tissue. It consists of intact adipocytes, stem cells, blood vessel cells, and connective tissue. This is the money layer. This is the one from which we extract the cells. The bottom layer is made of liquid, blood and surgical solution. It's kind of a murky dark red. The goal is to rescue the middle layer of tissue from the top oil and the bottom blood. Then we wash the broken up fat tissue by adding salt, water, saline, and just stirring it around. Over time, the fat tissue will rise to the top, giving a really disgusting two-layered solution. It's basically fat floating on top of dirty water. Then we add an enzyme called collagenase to the fat tissue, which helps break down the collagen, thereby freeing the cells. Through a series of centrifugations and filterings, we are left with a collection of stem cells at the bottom of a tube. After reducing three litres of stuff from the operating room to about one tablespoon of cells in the lab. In my own opinion, though, the real magic comes when you graft fat under damaged skin. Very often, if a breast cancer patient undergoes radiation, the skin of the breast will become hard to the touch and tough, clinically presenting as peau d'orange, translating to the very harsh descriptor, skin of an orange. New research shows that grafting fat under this damaged skin actually rescues the skin back to its normal, healthy, pliable state. This is because fat and the stem cells therein play a massive protective role to the tissue it is close to. Next on the agenda. We begin life as babies. It's a cold, unforgiving world out there when you're not located inside another human. When we are born, we're small. And it's critical we stay as independently warm as possible. The fat we have as infants is, logically, not the same fat we have from eating blocks of cheese all our life. Adult and baby fat is differentially named by their colours, simply enough. White fat in adults and brown fat in babies. The brown fat cells are brown because they contain many more mitochondria than white fat cells. And it's these mitochondria that create energy and warmth. While white fat is like insulation, keeping whatever body heat there is in, brown fat can be thought of as a radiator. Paradoxically enough, brown fat burns calories to create heat. 5% of a newborn baby is brown fat, but some of it stays into adult life, specifically around our shoulders, chest and neck, especially around the vertebral column within the neck. Feel how much warmer the back of your neck is right now compared to your forearm. The thing about brown fat is that it can absorb sugar molecules from the blood and use them to create heat with no negative side effects. There's so much money in diabetic and obesity research these days. I don't think I can count that high. One such project is trying to make white fat behave more like brown for a type of fat that researchers are just calling beige. Since cold temperatures seem to stimulate brown fat activity, the methodology to make beige fat seems pretty clear. One Japanese study put 12 young men to sit in a quasi-cold room, 15 degrees Celsius, two hours a day for six weeks. Initially, the study participants were burning 108 calories in the cold. But after six weeks of two hours of daily cold, 
That had gone from 108 to 289. At the end of the study, a scan showed that the 12 guys had an increase in beige fat <laughs> Excuse me, compared to the group that stayed warm for six weeks. There's one gene that stands out among the rest when it comes to brown fat, and that's UCP1, or uncoupling 1. It helps ferry molecules into and out of the mitochondria. UCP1 is the key for non-shivering thermogenesis, which is to say, getting warm without shivering. The truth is, periods of cold exposure are known to boost brown fat, immune system function, insulin function, and a faster recovery from injury. This is not just speculation anymore. We can literally measure the genes that are activated in response to cold. If you want to know more, I recommend reading about Wim Hof, the self-proclaimed ice man, whose brown fat levels are at around 35% based on his practice of cold therapy. If you want another source of information, find anyone in your life that regularly and willingly swims in a cold ocean. I've been correctly accused of being a creature of comfort, and so I'm loath to admit that there is boundless health benefits from intermittent cold exposure. Next up, another beneficial intermittent activity is fasting. I mean, taking the night time and adding two hours either end of it where there is only water or black coffee. By fasting between 8pm to 10am, for example, you have 14, 14 hours where your body can reset itself and get the blood chemistry right for a variety of benefits. Once you eat your last bite of the day, your body is digesting and blood sugar rises for the next three hours. Four hours after the last bite, the insulin levels begin to taper off as the sugar levels do too. Since the organs keep needing energy and glucose, a hormone called glucagon is activated to release glycogen from stores like the liver, leading to some blood glucose. 11 hours after the last bite, the glycogen from the liver is just not good enough anymore. And so the body begins to burn fat. To tap into these reserves, hormones like testosterone and adrenaline are released. The reserves, one kilo of white fat is about 7,700 calories. 12 hours after the last bite, ketosis begins. Ketones are a fatty acid made from fat cells or adipocytes. Ketones can protect and activate your nerve cells, which is why you can feel really focused during a morning where you forget to eat breakfast. 14 hours after the last bite, the body begins a unique process called autophagy. That's autophagy, derived from the ancient Greek to consume oneself. It's a massive clear out of old, defective and misfolded proteins. They're not only removed, but renewed. And after 15 hours, it's generally recommended you eat. All right, just like the intermittent cold, intermittent fasting reduces inflammation gives you better control over your blood sugar, helps you lose weight, can prevent neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. It can delay aging and even increase the effectiveness of chemotherapy if you should ever need it. Science is clearly telling us that all we need to do to have a healthier, younger, slimmer, more energetic body is just to go cold and hungry on a regular basis. And with that, I'm going to wrap up today's show. Researching fat was actually a huge part of my PhD thesis, and it's a huge part of my job right now. If you can't tell, I'm really into this stuff and really enjoying communicating the details to you. 
I do thank you for your listenership, as always. Until next time, honour thy curves, stay at home, and keep keeping one another safe. They're going to call me One Take Brett. That's me. Wow.